are listening to Shining Star Community Church English Ministry Sunday Message. Please visit us at www.shiningstar.life. As a pastor, I've been able to do many different things for my members, and one of them is to write character reference either through email or or uh, through phone interviews. Resumes are, are telling in that it speaks a great deal as to what the applicant has accomplished. Their potential in many ways gives the interviewer a glimpse of their past. But what a lot of people want is more than just potential in terms of work, but potential in terms of how that person will do well in their team, as a team player, as a team worker, or how well he or she would fit in the group, or how teachable that person is, or how moldable that person is. No one wants to hire someone of questionable, dubious character, right? And I'll tell you right now as a pastor, yeah, I can't lie to people. I'm not supposed to. We're not supposed to, but especially as a pastor, I can't do that. So if you're shady and you want a good reference, it's best not come to me. In fact, there was someone who called me a few years ago when they found out I was a pastor. They said, good, I'm sure you'll be honest in your opinion. I was like, okay, there. <laughs> right. So whatever that's supposed to mean. But I do aim to speak honestly of people I'm willing to vouch for. But here in our text, there's someone, okay, that no one would ever have written a reference for. Levi, the tax collector. There are two days that a lot of people typically dread. You know, this coming week we have daylight savings, right? Which means, again, you get to sleep for an extra hour, which is amazing. It's great. I'm glad how we're able to warp time like that. <laughs> but a lot of people dread the spring, the spring forward daylight savings day, where you lose an hour. We all hate that, don't we? It's like Saturday night, and we're thinking we're doing fine. It's 10 o'clock, but really it's 11 o'clock, and so it messes you up. But the second day that most people dread is April 15th, right? When your income taxes are due. So paying taxes can be frustrating enough, but like most people, our anger is never truly satisfied until we can project it onto a person or something which is why the IRS is both feared and hated at the same time. Well, Levi is like the IRS, but much, much, much worse. And in order for us to really appreciate the magnitude of who he is and why people hated him so much, let me tell you a little something about tax collectors of the New Testament era. So for us, when we think of tax collectors, we think of the IRS, but the truth of the IRS doesn't even begin to describe the truth of these ancient tax collectors. Now, throughout the entire Roman Empire, there were officials who were allowed to rule over certain areas and provinces. And these rulers were required to collect tax and then ship them over or forward them over to Rome. In the region of Galilee, there was a ruler of an area of Galilee. His name was King Herod. Herod, basically, he sold franchises to people who collected taxes for him. It was a profitable business, especially if you had no conscience. Because to be a tax collector, you became an enemy to your own people. You became a traitor because you worked for the higher-ups, the ones who were oppressing you and your people and your family. Tax collecting back then was pretty much legalized robbery. That's what it was. It was robbery because Rome had set an amount that needed to be received at the end of the year. So let's say Rome said to Galilee, King Herod, hey, every year you owe me a thousand denarii. You need to ship it and make sure we receive a thousand denarii from your province. But as a tax collector, 
backed up by the ruler, who was backed up by the governing Roman authority. You had so much immunity that you could go around and you could collect as much as you wanted, then send that 1,000 denarii over to Rome, and everything else that you collected was yours to keep. Do you see what bad things could happen? Not only that, there were varying degrees of tax collecting. The ones who were really rich, the really rich chief tax collectors, were the ones who collected taxes on land, on income, crops. And it was an incredibly lucrative business. Have you ever heard of Zacchaeus? Right? The small chief tax collector who climbed up that sycamore tree to get a better view of Jesus. He was a chief tax collector. He was one of the greatest and the richest of these collectors. But then there were the lesser tax collectors. These guys were actually worse because they set up toll stations along the road and everything was taxable. So, you, so you're walking along and then he stops you. He goes, uh, road tax. What are you talking about? You're on my road. Give me money. You have no choice but to give money. Then they cross over a bridge. Uh-uh, stop right there. That's my bridge. Bridge tax. And you, so on and so forth. There was road tax, bridge tax. And he goes, oh, you have one too many packages on your, on your cart. That's package tax. Then they go, what, are, what do I see right there? Is that a letter, an envelope? Yeah, there's, a, there's something called letter tax. A letter tax, too. And he goes, wait, how many wheels do you have on your cart? Two, three, four? There's axle tax. Not only that, there are wheel taxes, too. You know what? Is this one cart? Looks like a big cart. I'm going to have to charge one and a half cart tax. They keep doing that. So you, you can imagine how mad people were. Like, what are you talking about? And they get taxed. And so these guys were actually hated a bit more because of the random taxes that they would often place on people. And if people refuse, guess what? These small tax collectors, right, they would often have like these croonies around them, these bigger guys, the ones who would try to break your thumb if you didn't comply. These were the ones who would threaten to beating you up. This is like that bully throwing you against your locker, asking for your lunch money as payment to leave you alone for the day, right? Well, these lesser tax collectors are considered pretty low life because they were the ones you'd have to deal with every single day. When you're in the market, you would literally look out for that tax collector because he can come any moment, any time. And when he comes, he'll say, I'm going to grab a couple of these oranges, a couple of these things from my wife. And wait, did you pay? I paid you yesterday. Well, you can pay me again today. That's how it was right? They're low life. These guys are cruel, heartless, and they did whatever they felt like doing. In a society where they considered prostitution so bad that it was worthy of capital punishment if caught, they ranked these tax collectors well below them. Like that's how much the tax collectors were hated. They were banned from synagogues because they were considered automatically unclean, defiled, they were forbidden to ever, ever give a testimony in court because they were known liars and can never be trusted. In fact, in the Jewish writing Talmud, it says to be truthful and to live with integrity, except, they said, when you deal with tax collectors. The Jewish writing Talmud states that you can lie. It is, you have permission to lie to tax collectors anytime because they did not deserve the truth. Like, that's how bad it was for them. In fact, in some, some Jewish writings, contains writings where it says that tax collectors were, were beyond repentance, beyond forgiveness. In other words, that they were unredeemable. They cannot be saved. God will not save them. How crazy is that? 
So we got a guy who murdered another person, but yeah, if there's evidence of change and repentance, then he can be saved by God. Or that prostitute who swindled men out of their money, sleep with countless people, intentionally seducing men or whatever, yeah, she can be forgivable, but those tax collectors, no way. Mm-mm. They're doomed to hell, and they deserve every bit of it. That is Levi. That is Levi. So we have Levi who in the other Gospels is called Matthew. Matthew was the Greek name. Levi was his Hebrew name. And Levi was one of the most hated, most despised, and hopeless tax collectors. He was like the sinner of all sinners. Just get that to your mind. Not one person you truly hate, times ten. This person was an outcast. No one invited him to their parties. No one would ever invite them to even church, perhaps. You would, when you see him on the road, you cross the other side. You didn't want to associate with him. You didn't want to even speak to him. You didn't even want to make eye contact with this guy because he was scum of the earth. Levi. In verse 27, Jesus, he goes out of the house, and he heads down the road, and he sees Levi sitting in his little tax booth, ready to tax anyone and everyone. And the Bible says that Jesus saw him, which meant that Jesus, out of all the people that were walking around there, out of all, everyone else, Jesus singled him out. And Jesus looks straight at him in the eye, and he says, follow me. Now let's break this down for a moment, shall we? Jesus is the Son of God. That's what the Bible says. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is like the Super Bowl MVP. Jesus. He is like the CEO of the greatest company. And if you're in that kind of position, you would want the best for your team, wouldn't you? During the NFL draft, teams scout and they fight to get the number one prospect. They want, they want the guy who can catch all things, to jump so high, who can run a crazy 40-yard dash. No one wants the slow, butter-fingered, non-athletic type. Jesus was beginning to build his kingdom empire. He should be going after the ones who have theological degrees, the ones who have proper training, the ones who are respected by society, the ones who people love, the ones who people want to follow. But instead, Jesus goes to a tax collector of all people. Not only any tax collector, but the worst one of its kind, Levi had absolutely no qualifications. He was a bum, sneaky, shady, good-for-nothing toll collector who cheated people for a living. And he threatened people if they didn't pay up. Levi had no virtue of any kind, no redeeming qualities of any kind, no reputation to commend him. And yet, for some unmistakable, inexplicable reason, Jesus says, I want you. That's what Jesus does, people. There have been many misconceptions of Jesus, but I wish to introduce to you all today not the trendy Jesus that seems to be gaining popularity today, not the culturally relevant Jesus right now, or the good guy Jesus, or the Jesus that media seems to try to portray. No, the Jesus I introduce to you all today is the true Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible. And this Jesus calls not on the qualified, not on the respected, not on the morally upright, not on the ones who've done it all right every moment of their lives. No, Jesus calls the sinners to come follow him. And that's our first point. 
Jesus, he calls on me, a sinner. Some people have preached false messages about Jesus, saying that God will call you if you're good. Right? If you're good. No, they're mistaken. The reason why God calls you is because he is good. Some say that God will save you because you finally worked enough and you've earned it. No, God does the saving because you can't earn it. No matter who you are or what you've done, no one, not one person who's ever lived or ever will live is beyond hope. Now, perhaps you're thinking, well, do I have to be bad to be saved? Do I have to be like Levi for God to reach out to me? Maybe I'm actually not that bad a person. What then for me, Pastor David? When we make statements like that, we begin to compare ourselves with others. Specifically, we compare ourselves to people like Levi. So yeah, compared to him, I'm looking pretty darn good. Compared to the people who get addicted to drugs, bring domestic violence, squander money, get into fights, break the law, do whatever, yeah, I'm looking pretty darn good. But the truth is, God, he doesn't use others to measure you up or down. After all, it's in his presence we're trying to seek, not mine or yours. If it's to God we're trying to get to, then it's God's standard we must meet. This means we don't compare ourselves to one another. We must compare ourselves to the standard, the standard of God, or I should say the perfection of God. Turn to your neighbor and say this. I will not compare myself to you. As a youth pastor, I have so many people, so many students who are crying out because their parents, and it kind of leaks and trickles down into their personality, into their minds too. They keep comparing themselves to one another. I told you before that there was a ministry that had to purposely create uh, very urgently, too, a ministry for moms because at that moment, what their ministry was going through, moms were fighting against each other, saying, this is the way you should raise up your kid. This is the type of education you should apply upon your child. This is the type of school you should go. You should homeschool. No, you shouldn't homeschool. You should go to private school. No, you shouldn't private school. You should go to public school. And there's this going on. Why? They're saying, because mine, look at how well my kid turned out. Look how much better my family is. And so they constantly compare, and we can't do that. We're not supposed to do that. And so God has given us a way to see how badly we'll fail at that. He's given us the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments is a reflection of His perfect standard, and the truth is not a single person can obey and live out those laws. Have you ever tried? I'm not talking about every day or every year. I'm talking about every moment of every day. Can you live up to the standards and the perfection of God's Ten Commandments laws? We can't. The point of the Ten Commandments wasn't simply to point to our, out our inability, but to point out the salvation must come from God. The Ten Commandments was a glaring red alert sign saying, you can't do it. It must be his doing, not ours. And the problem with many people who are unwilling to admit that they are at fault of any kind is that they think they are on the level of God, that somehow they've earned their way into a right standing before God. Well, I pay my taxes on time. 
I take care of my family. I give charity when I can. I'm courteous to people. I show proper social etiquette. I've never cheated in school. I work with integrity. I do my best. Therefore, I am owed good things. I am owed eternal life. Growing up for me, I was probably one of the most legalistic, self-righteous Christians. Do you know why? I have only missed church one time, one Sunday in my entire life. And it was the day that all of America missed Sunday service, on the East Coast at least, because of a blizzard. That was the only time. And for some reason, I thought, because that was the only time I've ever missed Sunday service, God, look at my obedience. I am holy. <laughs> Give me your favor, O oh Lord. People like me, these are the people who would never classify themselves as sinners. But they will be in for a rude awakening because Jesus says, I only accept sinners. And that's our second point. If you think you are not a sinner, he will not accept you because Jesus only accepts sinners. Now, being a sinner isn't just being a Levi and extorting people or threatening others. Being a sinner describes even the most godly of men. In this day and age, we as a people typically like to sugarcoat words because certain words like sin or sinner, it carries too much weight. So if we mess up, we'll say things like, well, no one's perfect. That's how we get by. That's what we'll say. Or I've tried my best. But again, those statements are made in comparison and in light of others. And so we feel justified in our failures. We feel justified in our disqualifications. After all, no one's perfect. But that's why we need to understand that sinning isn't an act, whether intentional or not, towards just another human being. Even though it might seem that way at first, sinning is first and always against God. It is always against God. So while you may now sin against me, or against someone else, we have sinned, certainly, surely, against God. So yes, while I may have hurt you with some careless words, I am in fact offending God because you are his creation. When I, when I live my life completely devoid of meaning and purpose, so I choose to live for myself and my personal ambition and pleasures, I'm sinning against God because I'm declaring that God has no concern for his creation and has no purpose for my life. So therefore, I'm questioning God's sovereignty, whether he is truly, in fact, in control, and I'm also questioning and sinning against his character. God, you're not all loving. You are not truly comforting. You are not fulfilling your promises. But Jesus had to come to take away your sins, guilt, and shame. The Son of God has to come to die, has asked to come to dine with you and bring truth of who he is into your life. Jesus didn't come to pat the obedient on the head and say, Good job. There you go. He came to seek and save the lost. And if all people realize this, they would soon realize that we are all lost and need to be saved. So here we have Jesus. Dining with the tax collectors. Dining with the sinners. Can you imagine that? If you saw me at some bar, surrounded by just really people, questionable backgrounds, just imagine the uproar, the gossip that would occur. Well, Jesus was dining with these so-called lowlifes, sinners, tax collectors, 
And these Pharisees come along, these so-called upstanding righteous citizens who could do no wrong. They show up and they call Jesus out. If you're so righteous, Jesus, like you always say and claim to be, how can you therefore hang out with the scum of the earth, with these unrighteous, unclean public sinners that we all know are terrible people? How could you hang out with them? How can you associate with them? Jesus was in a sticky situation, but he answers them plainly in verse 31, 32. Those who are well, he says, have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. This is a simple yet profound answer. Let's think about it. Who needs a doctor? Sick people. Can you imagine a doctor putting a sign outside their clinic saying, sick people, not welcome here? It's moronic. It's stupid. Jesus came to minister to those who are in need, the sick, the broken, the ones who are distraught, the ones that know that they need help. But then Jesus goes beyond that and says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You see, Jesus right now, he sees two groups. He sees the tax collectors with their sinful friends. And then he sees the scribes and the Pharisees with their impeccable righteous practice of the law. And who does Jesus accept? Jesus accepts the sinners who repent and acknowledge their need of a Savior, and he rejects the sinners who say that they have no sin and are righteous by their own deeds. You see, the story is amazing, people, because it flies in the face of everything we have inherently th thought about and know about religion. Because we assume that those who have done their best works and deeds are accepted by God. Those who keep the law are upright and who are good are accepted by God. Those who have the happiest marriages and work successfully and have good income are accepted more so by God than those who are struggling in their families, who are struggling in their marriages, who are struggling financially. We believe that the ones who have never missed church service, like myself, are much more accepted by those who have more of an inconsistent attendance. We believe that the ones who have never raised a hand in violence towards their wife or kids are much more accepted by God than the men or the women who have struggled with that. We believe that the ones who have never tasted a drop of alcohol or never inhaled or never smoked a single cigarette or never smoked a joint are somehow much more acceptable by God than those who have gotten wasted before, who have been addicted to alcohol or anything like that. We believe that the ones who are more, much more tolerant and accepting of everyone and their choices are much more accepted by God. We assume that the more we do, the better God likes us, the more readily he'll accept us. And so inversely, we assume that the more sin we have, the more possible it is that God will not accept us. But the point of this passage tells us something completely radical. He says that the more righteous you think you are, the more impossible it will be that you might ever be accepted by God. But if you are hopelessly sinful and you admit your faults and your failures and that you have failed and failed and that you have inadequacies, that you have brokenness and insecurities, Jesus will accept you in his grace. The key is to surrender yourselves and admit your need for salvation. 
But we, as people, often say, I'm fine. There's a story of Ni Tuaseng. He tells a story. He's a Christian Chinese brother. He tells a story of his stay in China with 20 other Christians. The bathing accommodations were inadequate in the home where they were lodging, so they went for a daily dip in the nearby river. On one occasion, one of the men got a cramp in his leg, quickly began sinking fast. Mr. Ni motioned to one of the other men who was an excellent swimmer about the drowning man. But to his astonishment, however, that man did not move. He just stood there on the shore and watched the drowning man. Mr. Ni was agitated. Look, he is drowning. But the swimmer who was standing on the shore was calm and collected. Meanwhile, the voice of the drowning man who was screaming, help, 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 grew fainter and more desperate. Mr. Ni hated that man who was on the side, that swimmer who just stood and watched on the shore when he could have easily jumped into that river and rescued that drowning man. And as that drowning man went under for what looked like the last time, boom, the swimmer dove in and he was right there next to him in a moment. And both were soon safely on the shore. After the rescue, Brother Nee, he chewed out the swimmer, accusing him of loving his life, wanting to preserve his own life much more than wanting to help a fellow brother. And the response of the swimmer revealed, however, that he knew what he was doing. He told Brother Nee that if he had gone in too soon, the drowning man would have put a death grip on him and they would have both drowned in the river. And he was right. He told Mr. Nee that a drowning man cannot be saved until he is utterly exhausted and ceases to make the slightest effort to save himself. Such is the case with our salvation, brothers and sisters and friends. When we stop trying to save ourselves, then the Lord can step in and save us when we surrender to him. Jesus is not saying, people, that sinners are good and the good are sinners. He's not calling good evil and evil good. What Jesus is doing here is simply reflecting the gospel message. But God, he saves sinners because Jesus, the truly righteous one, gave his life on the cross to pay your sin, my sin in debt, and rose from the dead to raise them to new eternal life. Jesus will not save the righteous because their facade of self-righteousness turns them away from Jesus. And in their turning away from Jesus, they look elsewhere for the solutions. It is my good works. It is my merit that can save me. It is my accomplishments. It is my success. It is the beauty of my wife. It is the, it is the number of children I have. It is my zip code. It is my address. No, that will not save because apart from Christ, there is no solution for our sins. As it is often the case that the most wretched and hopeless sinners are the ones who turn around. Are the ones who follow Jesus in faith and they become his disciples, I being one of them. While those who seem to be ideal candidates for the kingdom... The ones who seem so perfect for the kingdom of God. The ones who seem so nice. The ones who seem so qualified. The ones where you go, oh, that is a good guy. That is an outstanding woman. There are people that we would follow. These are people that we would look up to. It's these outstanding, idealistic candidates 
who actually disqualify themselves because of their self-pride of complacency. I call you all, and I end with this, to see yourself in Levi, a sinner deserving nothing, yet by the grace and love and mercy of God, Jesus, he is calling you today. He is calling you today just as he called Levi to follow him no matter what the cost. It is the grace of God. It is by his works. It is by his righteousness that we are saved. Not by anything we've done, have done, or will ever do. Praise be to God. Let's pray. As the praise team comes up here for the final song, I want to encourage you all to take this moment. You've heard the Lord speak. You've heard the message of God, and I pray and encourage and challenge you all now to respond. No response is, in fact, a response. But I ask that you would faithfully respond and that you would look at your hearts See where you stand before him. Do you feel in any way that you have qualified yourself to stand before the living God because of who you are and what you've done? I'm reminded by a good pastor friend of mine. He said, this is how you know you're a Christian, how you know you know Christ. Is that if he were to ask you, how do you know if you're saved? Well, how do you know that you are a Christian? If the person says, well, it's because I, I grew up in a Christian household or because I go to church every Sunday or because I go to life group or because I'm married to a Christian woman or because I want to raise my children up with Christian values or anything, anything like that, it is wrong. For the only appropriate and correct answer we could ever offer when asked, are you a Christian? And how do you know so? Is if we respond this way. Because I could not save myself. Because Jesus saved me, a sinner. And that in itself is the core of the gospel message, brothers and sisters and friends. It is our acknowledgement and that there's absolutely nothing, nothing that you and I can do to inherit eternal life in Christ Jesus. We cannot choose salvation, but God can choose us for salvation. And he does so by his grace and mercy, which has nothing to do with whether we deserve it or not. I want to give you guys just a brief moment here, not just to pray, and seek the Lord. And maybe this is your first time coming to church, and maybe this is your first time hearing the gospel message, but whatever it might be, would you ask God and would you admit, admit your sins? Would you confess your self-righteousness? Would you confess and repent of the idea that you were able to do everything on your own? And would you humbly surrender yourself before the one who can save you? Let's pray. Mm-hmm.